You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about anxiety. Joining me, I have two guests, Dr. Lewis and Dr. Fletcher, both from the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. First, Dr. Jason Lewis is a psychologist and the section director of Mood, Anxiety, and Trauma Disorders. Thank you so much, Dr. Lewis, for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Lockwood. And next, I have Dr. Katrina Fletcher, who is a psychiatrist and associate director of behavioral health education in the pediatric residency program. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Fletcher. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great. So we're going to talk about anxiety. CHOP has a new anxiety pathway that we're going to talk a lot about today, too. But let's start with screening. So I think about screening for anxiety in children or adolescents with some of the following symptoms or risk factors, things like school refusal, academic decline, social isolation, emotional irritability, physical complaints that don't have a medical diagnosis, trauma, newer worsening stressors, psychiatric comorbidities, suicidal ideation, or family history of anxiety. Those are a lot of things and make up many of my patients. So once I have this concern for anxiety, what tools should I be using to screen or assess it? Great. That's an excellent question. Certainly. So when there are risk factors, such as those that you just mentioned, it's very important to screen for the presence of a possible anxiety disorder. In the absence of the risk factors that you mentioned, you might want to incorporate a standardized screening tool into your practice. For pediatricians, a useful screening tool is the Pediatric Symptom Checklist, which is a freely available general social-emotional screening tool that screens for symptoms of anxiety in youth ages 4 to 17. There is also the Screen for Child Anxiety-Related Emotional Disorders, also called the SCARED, which has a child self-report version and a parent version. This is for youth ages 8 to 18, and it produces a screening score for several different specific anxiety disorders, as well as a total cutoff score, which indicates the possible presence of an anxiety disorder, more generally speaking. A third screening option is the Generalized Anxiety Disorder 7, also known as the GAD-7, which is a seven-item self-report screening and assessment tool for individuals 13 through adulthood. All of these screening tools can be found via our pathway. One and very important to note though, is that anytime a screen is positive, the individual should then be further assessed for the presence of a specific anxiety disorder. Right, that's a great point. Screening is not the end of the process of evaluating for anxiety. So once we've identified it, then we need to assess it, which we will talk a little bit more about. Well, comorbidities are common with anxiety. So what other diagnoses should we consider in our differential or as comorbid conditions? So another great question. So absolutely, the differential for anxiety symptoms is actually quite broad, with anxiety disorders likely being towards the top. 
However, there are other disorders on the differential that should be assessed for, which include depressive disorders, bipolar disorder, substance use disorders, trauma and PTSD, eating disorders, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, as well as the possibility of psychotic disorders. Those psychotic disorders are relatively uncommon in young patients and typically don't start emerging until later adolescence or adulthood. But there are also a number of comorbidities that you can see with anxiety disorders. And some of the most common are actually other anxiety disorders. So it is relatively common to see one patient with more than one anxiety disorder. But other comorbidities include depressive disorders or other mood disorders, substance use disorders, ADHD, and even medical conditions. Right. So you mentioned a lot of different psychiatric comorbidities. But as you mentioned, there's other medical diagnoses that can either mimic anxiety or cause anxiety symptoms, and we should consider evaluating for those if symptoms are present. So can you give an example of what some of those medical diagnoses might be? Absolutely. So there are actually many medical causes that can produce anxiety symptoms, which of course is different than an anxiety disorder, as Dr. Lewis was alluding to. So anxiety symptoms can be produced by hyperthyroidism, hypoglycemia, too much caffeine, migraine, seizures, or other CNS disorders, asthma, lead intoxication, and rare pediatric conditions such as pheochromocytomas and cardiac arrhythmias. But in addition to medical causes, there are actually a number of medications that can cause anxiety symptoms, which include asthma medications, steroids, sympathomimetics such as stimulants, SSRIs, antipsychotics, and many over-the-counter medications such as diet pills, cold medications, and antihistamines. So when thinking about your differential, it's important to think about the time course in addition to the symptoms. If there's abrupt onset of anxiety symptoms, then anxiety disorders would actually drop lower on my differential since anxiety disorders must have persistent symptoms for at least four weeks for some of the anxiety disorders, such as separation anxiety, or some for six months, such as generalized anxiety disorder. Therefore, I would actually have medical causes, medication causes, substance use, or trauma much higher on my differential for a really abrupt onset of anxiety. It's a really helpful distinguishing point. Now, you've hinted at, but we haven't talked about yet, the fact that not all anxiety looks the same and that actually under that umbrella term anxiety disorders, there are different types. So can you tell us what the different types of anxiety disorders are? Yeah, so this is uh, absolutely correct. The term anxiety disorders, when we use that term, actually it's an umbrella term for a group of diagnoses, all of which that share features of excessive fear, anxiety, avoidance behavior. They differ from one another in the types of objects or situations that induce the fear uh, or the anxiety. So for example, separation anxiety disorder is highlighted by excessive fear or worry concerning separation from those to whom the individual is closely attached. Whereas selective mutism is failure to speak in a specific social situation in which there is an expectation for speaking. Another diagnosis is specific phobia, which is a fear or anxiety about a specific object or situation. For example, fear of spiders or fear of the dark. There's also something called social anxiety, which is a significant fear or anxiety about social situations in which the individual is exposed to possible scrutiny by others. There's also something called panic disorder, which involves recurrent unexpected panic attacks. So panic attacks are abrupt surges of intense fear or physical discomfort. Lastly, there's something called generalized anxiety disorder, which involves chronic excessive worrying about a number of situations. 
This term also includes situations in which there are anxiety symptoms that cause significant distress or impairment, but do not meet full criteria for any specific anxiety disorder. This type of situation would warrant a diagnosis of unspecified anxiety disorder. One other note, our pathway also includes the diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder, which technically does not fall within the anxiety disorder grouping, but was involved in our pathway because of the similarities in the treatment approach. Obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD includes recurrent intrusive and unwanted thoughts or images, which we call obsessions, and repetitive behaviors performed in response to an obsession, which we call compulsions. Thank you for talking about all those different types of anxiety disorders and making that distinction about OCD. Now, beyond the fact that there are different types of anxiety disorders, anxiety itself occurs on a spectrum. So can you talk a little bit about how we classify symptoms as mild, moderate, or severe? Because as we'll talk about soon, that will influence our treatment plan. Absolutely. Yes. So during an assessment for an anxiety disorder, the priority is always to determine if the individual meets diagnostic criteria for that specific anxiety disorder. So that's always going to be front and center, whether or not the individual meets criteria for the diagnosis. However, after that, it is equally important to determine the severity of the illness. As you mentioned, the severity is a key factor in determining the recommended treatment course. So in determining severity, there's a few things that an individual should look at, one of which is the severity of symptoms. Also, you should look at the degree of impairment of those symptoms upon functioning. So how impairing is the functioning? The degree of distress experienced by the individual because of the symptoms. The degree of avoidance on the part of the individual because of the symptoms. The presence or absence of comorbid psychiatric conditions, as Dr. Fletcher was talking about. And the presence or absence of suicidal ideation and or suicidal behavior. The information needed to determine the level of severity can be gathered by the clinical interview or symptom rating scales such as the SCARED and the GAD-7 that were mentioned earlier. Perfect. Thank you so much for explaining all of the nuance that goes into that assessment. So for mild anxiety, supportive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, not medications, are the first line. So Dr. Lewis, can you explain how cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT works for mild anxiety? Absolutely. Yes. As you mentioned, cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the recommended treatments for anxiety that falls in the mild range, the mild severity range. So essentially, CBT is a diverse group of interventions that target the three primary dimensions of anxiety. So that first dimension is the cognitive dimension, which involves errors in thinking related to the likelihood of harm occurring. So individuals with anxiety overestimate the likelihood of something bad happening. The second dimension that's targeted by CBT is the behavioral dimension, which involves avoidance strategies used by the individual to decrease the anxiety. So essentially the individual fears a specific situation and then they avoid that situation in order to decrease their anxiety. The last dimension that's targeted by CBT is physiological, which essentially refers to the autonomic arousal that we see when individuals experience anxiety, as well as the somatic symptoms like headaches, stomach aches that people often report experiencing. So essentially, CBT is a skills-based treatment that teaches skills focused on each of these areas. CBT is a recommended treatment for most of the emotionally-based disorders or problem areas. For example, it's also the recommended treatment for depression, anger management, 
However, the cornerstone of most CBT anxiety treatments and something that differentiates CBT for anxiety from CBT for other disorders is graduated exposure. And when I say graduated exposure, what I'm referring to is the creation of a fear hierarchy that's mastered in a stepwise manner. So for example, a person who's experiencing social anxiety, a fear hierarchy would include all the social situations that induce fear and anxiety for that particular person. And the treatment approach would have the individual put him or herself in these situations using the skills that have been taught to them throughout the course of treatment rather than avoiding the situations as they have historically done. Great. So they're starting from the experience that is the least anxiety provoking and then working their way up to what they see as the potential worst case scenario, most anxiety provoking scenario. So they gain some competency with the easier stuff first, working up to what's hardest. Is that right? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Already having been taught the skills. So now they have these skills to aid them um, as they are um, putting themselves in these anxiety provoking situations. Now for moderate or severe anxiety, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs may be added to the treatment plan. So Dr. Fletcher, can you talk about how you approach initiating an SSRI? Of course. So I typically think about starting an SSRI when anxiety symptoms or impairment is limiting participation in psychotherapy. So for example, a patient who is unable to tolerate exposures, like Dr. Lewis was just talking about, when there's only partial response to psychotherapy, when there's a comorbidity such as depression that requires concurrent treatment, or the symptoms are significant enough right at the beginning of treatment that you think there would be an improved outcome with combination treatment of an SSRI in addition to psychotherapy. As we just mentioned, SSRIs are the first-line medications for anxiety disorders. And while none of the SSRIs are FDA-approved for the core anxiety disorders, there is ample evidence in the literature of their safety and efficacy to treat pediatric anxiety disorders. In addition, both sertraline and fluoxetine are FDA-approved for pediatric OCD. There are no clear dosing guidelines for anxiety disorders in children. So in general, you want to start low and go slow since there's increased risk for side effects, especially in younger children, patients with developmental delays, and highly somatic patients. In teenagers, the dosing tends to line up with SSRI dosing for teenage depression. There are numerous resources to help with dosing, including the CHOP Anxiety Pathway, which we'll be talking about later. When titrating, remember that it takes four to six weeks to see full therapeutic benefit at any given dose. So be careful about titrating too quickly, especially once you're past the initial couple of dosing adjustments. I do think it is very important to have an open discussion about the risks, benefits, and side effects of the SSRIs before starting them. Though I stress with families and patients that overall SSRIs are typically well-tolerated medications. And if side effects do develop, most mild side effects will go away within the first one to two weeks at any dose adjustment if you continue taking the medication. It is also important to discuss the rare but potentially serious side effects, including serotonin syndrome and the black box warning, since these possible side effects could need urgent medical or safety evaluation. I also use the black box warning discussion to discuss the importance of open communication, safety assessments at each visit, and safety plan with the patient and family. 
It's so important that you mentioned that it may take six weeks for these medications to work because it's so unlike other medications that we use in pediatrics. And it is one of the reasons that I see noncompliance with treatment from my patients and their families where they get frustrated that they're not seeing a benefit from the medication right away, as you might expect when you start taking a medication. So that's, I feel like, such an important teaching pearl for us to remember when we are initiating these medications so that we can educate our patients appropriately. Now, patients and families often want to know how long will their child need treatment for anxiety and how do we know a treatment plan is working and when we can stop it? So absolutely, this is a question I get all the time when discussing initiating SSRIs. I think it's important to discuss that SSRIs are not short-term medications since they take time to titrate up to the therapeutic level, as you were just discussing, Dr. Lockwood. And again, it can take that four to six weeks to see full therapeutic benefit at any dose. The goal is to get the anxiety disorder symptoms into remission. Now, as Dr. Lewis was talking about at the beginning, it's important to remember that anxiety is a normal human emotion that we all experience, and not all anxiety is bad or a disorder. So we're not trying to get rid of all anxiety, but we're trying to get rid of the impairment or distress that makes it an anxiety disorder. So once you get the impairment or distress in remission, you want the patient's symptoms to remain in remission for a sustained period of time to reduce the chance of relapse. Therefore, once in remission, you should continue the medication for at least six to 12 months, and I usually err on the side of 12 months, before gradually tapering down to discontinuation. And you want to continue monitoring for possible symptom reemergence throughout the taper off the medication and after the medication is discontinued because you can see symptoms to start reemerging once off the medication. Thank you. That's a really helpful perspective that we can offer families so they can see the long-term view of this treatment plan. And with that, you mentioned that anxiety itself doesn't really go away entirely. And everyone has a little bit of an anxiety um, in certain settings or certain moments. So what are some things that we can do in the primary care setting to help educate families about anxiety and then give them some practical tools that help manage these symptoms when they do pop up? Yeah, this is great. You know, education is really important and it's one of the major first aspects of CBT when you're treating a, an individual with anxiety is to provide education. That would include education about the etiology of the anxiety disorder, how the anxiety disorder is maintained, how it differs from developmentally normative anxiety and fear, as we've talked about anxiety as a normal human emotion, as well as education about the treatment. All of these things are really important and something that all primary care clinicians should really be thinking about providing for their patients and for their families. Included in this, you know, it's widely known that anxiety disorders significantly impact family relationships. It's also well understood that family members can inadvertently reinforce anxiety symptoms. So education about the impact of the individual's anxiety disorder upon the entire family functioning is often really important. There are a host of several great books and websites listed on the CHOP Clinical Pathway for Anxiety and OCD that are designed specifically for parents to educate them about the aspects of anxiety that I was just talking about and to help them learn how to help anxious children. Also, although CBT is something that's provided by a trained clinician, there are certain aspects that parents can do themselves to help children on the road to recovery. 
This includes a focus on sleep hygiene, the importance of getting good exercise, the importance of eating well-balanced meals. Also, relaxation and mindfulness are two very important CBT anxiety skills. They're useful in decreasing worry. They help decrease the physiological symptoms of anxiety. So guiding parents towards apps, YouTube videos, other resources focused on relaxation and mindfulness can be really helpful. Lastly, it's really important for caregivers to work with schools to minimize the impact of symptoms on academic performance. So having part of your education be focused on helping the parents have discussions with teachers or guidance counselors or other individuals at schools can also be really important. So many great practical tips. Thank you. Now, we've been teasing it this whole episode, but CHOP recently published a clinical pathway for the evaluation and treatment of patients at risk for anxiety and OCD. And you both were co-authors on that pathway. So how do you envision this pathway helping pediatricians? Yeah, I think it can be tremendously helpful. Anxiety disorders collectively are the third most prevalent childhood psychiatric condition after ADHD and behavior disorders. So there are many individuals presenting in primary care practices throughout the entire network with anxiety, anxiety symptoms, anxiety disorders. So this tool, I think, will be invaluable for pediatricians to help them better assess, better diagnose, and better treat their individuals that are experiencing anxiety disorders. The pathway is filled with all sorts of guidance, provider resources, patient and family education tools that can be given directly to patient and families that can be used by the pediatricians themselves. There are links to free measures for screening and assessment tools that I talked about before. So the pathway really is a wealth of resources for pediatricians in helping them you know, treat this really significant population of individuals. The pathway also includes a medication section. So you can see on the medication pages, important things to consider and discuss with a patient and family, including informed consent and how to document. And then the general concepts surrounding medication management of anxiety, including SSRIs being first line medications. And then there's a medication chart, which can highlight the most commonly used medications to treat pediatric anxiety disorders, the FDA indications, how to dose and titrate, and the important side effects to be aware of and how to counsel on them, including the rare but serious side effects. And then there are also sections on how to manage the medications in the different stages of treatment, whether it be acute stage, continuation, or maintenance phases, as well as treatment approach to treatment-resistant anxiety and when a behavioral health consultation may be helpful. And at the end of the pathway, there's a section on how to taper a patient off medication if they have successfully completed maintenance and how, if a patient has already been in subspecialty behavioral health treatment, how they can be successfully transitioned back into primary care. I love how the pathway consolidates resources too. So if you are seeing a patient with anxiety you know, a month from now, and you've already forgotten the screening tools that we mentioned at the beginning, or if you forgot the SSRI names that Dr. Fletcher mentioned in the middle, it's all listed there for you in the pathway. So you don't have to remember all of these details yet. You can use your pathway as a resource to have all of this information consolidated for you until you start to learn the pathway and internalize that yourself in your practice. Okay, so thank you so much for joining me and teaching us all about anxiety today. We appreciate the creation of this pathway and all of the teaching that you've done for us today and the care you provide for our patients at CHOP. So thank you very much, Dr. Fletcher and Dr. Lewis. Thank you so much, Dr. Lockwood, for having us. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 